Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Just wrapped up a great interview with Chris Langford, Chris's partner with Idea Fund Partners in the Triangle. Um, he's you know he's been in Charlotte for I don't know the last ten years probably. Uh, helped launch Lowe's um, Venture Arm. Um, has been a just a constant member of the Charlotte entrepreneurial and startup community. And really just felt it was going to be a fantastic opportunity to sit down and talk with Chris just about his career, what, how it took him into different places. I think a lot of us know who Chris is, but just, just hear his story um, and then grab him and talk to him about a couple of deals and what he's learned from you know each step of his career and how it's helping him form opinions on companies and how he approaches uh, the, the deals from that perspective as he's grown up. So fantastic interview. I know you're going to, um, thoroughly enjoy this conversation with Chris. And as a result of this, I mean, it's pretty clear that we're going to have to have Chris back on at some point in time in the, um, not terribly too far distant future. So enjoy this episode with Chris Langford from my Fund partners. All right, Chris, welcome to the show today, man. We've known each other too long to have had this be our first podcast interview. So thanks for joining me. Absolutely. Uh, always excited to chat. So um, as we've talked about, I mean, so today just want to dive through a little bit of background on Chris. You're fairly well known around the startup community, investor community in Charlotte, but just want to dive through some of the background um, get your take on, you know, the venture world. Cause you, I mean, as everybody knows, you've sat on two sides, right? You've sat on the Lowe's venture side, which is corporate. And then you've sat on the more traditional VC side. So different difference in those, um, and just your take on, on some other items as well. So I'm excited about our conversation. Cool. Yeah, let's do it. Um, all right. So, um, I asked you the other day, um, asked you the other day, something about football and you said football, college football doesn't exist outside of the sec which i thought was a great comment um so you got your you got your undergraduate and graduate or in your mba at university of florida right i did yeah go gators they go gators so you studied security analysis competitive strategy and entrepreneurship as part of your graduate program um, you'd already been to work right you were at tira price before that for a couple of years then you went back got your mba at florida what did you think you were going to come out of school and do? What did the 24 year old version of Chris think the next 30 years were going to be like? Well, I'll tell you immediately prior to business school, I was a hundred percent certain that I was going to be a constitutional lawyer. Um, somehow I don't even remember where it started. Well, I'll, I'll actually go really far back. I'd say the two things that I thought I was going to be growing up. One was a comedian <laughs> And the other one, which nobody in my family will ever live me, let me live down, was a professional football. And the, the joke was we had to write down what we were going to be when we grew up in school one day. And I forgot to put player. And so uh, nobody ever let me live down the idea that I said I was going to be a professional football one day. And if you've ever seen me uh, from a shape perspective, I think I'm probably closest to attaining that goal. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, going into uh, going into my early career, I was a hundred percent certain that I was going to be a lawyer, and I thought the idea of constitutional law and, and was was really interesting. I guess I thought I wanted to be a judge one day or something like that. I have no Shoot, idea where. Here on November 20th, 2020, a constitutional lawyer would be um, in high demand following the election, I would assume, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, and honestly, I still find, I still find like early American history and, and the application of law, particularly when it comes to like interpretation of the very early days, fascinating. Um, so that was, that was, I was positive. That's what I was going to do. I, um, took the LSAT, applied to several law schools, was accepted to several law schools, um, was talking about it with my my girlfriend, who's now my wife of 15 years as of yesterday. Hey, and, congratulations. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, and, you know, we were looking at all the different things. They were all out of school, out of state law schools. Um, this would be the first time either of us really lived outside of Florida. And I had a really... The conversation that changed my trajectory was I was working at T. Rowe Price as a, you know, kind of a, a wealth manager or advisor at that point. Um, and I was talking to a guy who I worked with who had graduated from law school about three, four years ago. And we theoretically had the exact same job, right? I was a 23-year-old uh, finance major and he was a whatever-year-old uh, JD. And um, so he says to me, you ever spent any time at a law firm? And I said, no, no, I haven't. He's like, do you know what a lawyer does? Like, really? Like, and I said, I guess not. He said, I'm just going to tell you something. In my law school class, there were, you could segment it up and about 30% of people by the end of year one, realized they were never going to practice law, that they had made a decision that they didn't recognize was a decision that like they had no idea what they were getting into. And when they finally realized it, they said, oh, crap, this isn't for me. He said, the worst part is the majority of those 30% still go through with it because they're already 30 or 40 grand in debt. And they think, if I'm 40 grand in debt with nothing to show for it, it's worse than if I'm 100 grand in debt and I have a JD, right? And, and I thought, wow, that sounds daunting. Or, like, I, that sounds like a bad idea, right? Yeah. Um, what if I come out and I'm back where I started? So I got a flyer in the mail one day for Florida's MBA program. And they actually had a, like a nine-month accelerated program if you were a business undergrad. My wife said, why don't you just go hear about it? Uh, mostly what you want to do is change careers right now. So why don't you just go hear about it and see? I went and took the GMAT. I applied. I got a 100% scholarship. And I thought, it's nine months, no money out of my pocket. I might as well go do this, see if it puts me on a path that I want to be on, see if I want to go to law school at some point. And so, um, yeah, so then I went to business school instead. And, uh, you know, I, for, again, I have no idea how these ideas came into my head, but it, by the time I got to business school, like I thought I want to be an investment banker. 
Um, I'm not even sure where I learned that term or what it was. Um, maybe I, maybe it was like when I was an undergrad, it was like, these are the kids who are studying at school. These are the jobs they're getting. And maybe I should yeah. try to do that. But somehow in my mind, I thought this was, this is my other path. Like I want to be an investment banker. And, uh, and that's ultimately what I did early on. Um, it wasn't you, easy. Florida is not exactly an investment banker feeder school. Yeah. Uh, so it took me networking with my, um, with my entrepreneurship professor who served on the Federal Reserve with a partner at an investment bank to get me an intro and a lunch. And I just sort of stumbled my way into it between having lunch with this guy that then allowed me to take this aptitude test that they had. And um, not to humble, but I, I scored the highest score they ever had on this. Like, I'm sure it was some meaningless test that like really doesn't judge whether you're smart it just judges whether you're good at taking tests and I scored the high I scored I beat they had one partner who they thought was really smart and I beat his score and uh and they offered me a job and then and then I just parlayed that into I think everything else after you get your foot in the door is about creating opportunity and constantly striving for a job that you are not qualified for. So that's what I've been doing ever since is constantly looking to get into a job that I'm theoretically not qualified for, which I sit at today, I think yeah. in some ways. <laughs> I got you. So what, um, that's interesting. So you did some stats with investment banks. What was that like? Did you enjoy it? Uh, I think I always describe most jobs as like, I enjoyed it until I didn't. Um, it's an amazing, it's an amazing education. Um, you know, I think I was very lucky in the sense that, you know, I worked for a boutique investment bank as opposed to bulge bracket. So there was, I mean, we had titles, which mostly was dictated about how much we got paid, but in, in truth, we all had to do everything. And so super hands-on, um, you know, we had a valuations practice, so we all had to do a rotation in valuations, which really gave me an amazing education in accounting and, and financial principles. Um, so, it, you know, it was great. I, I thought it was exciting. You know, it's a lot of work for sure. It was kind of a shock to the system coming from a family where nobody had ever had a professional job and, you know, uh, growing up. So this was all foreign territory for me. But also, I, you know, I'll be honest, the first time I ever got a bonus check, I was like, wow, this is, this is good living right here. Um, I never thought I'd make this much money, which today I would probably look at and not be super impressed with. But at the time, it was, it was shockingly it changed. The one thing I'll say about it was, one, not only did it give me an education, it, it set me up to be the first time in my life that I didn't think I was one catastrophe away from being personally bankrupt, right? Growing up very poor, um, you know, you, you, the idea that, oh, if I had a $10,000 expense, I could live through that. It's a, it, it frees you in a way that, that you can't understand if you're on the other side of that coin, right? And so I, I think more than anything, it was worth it not only because of the, the learning, but because it, it gave me a baseline to kind of make decisions that were more in my own sort of interest of, of getting better professionally, as opposed to 
to always being thinking about the next dollar that I had to make. Um, so yeah, I yeah, I liked it. It was fun. And then and then it got really tedious. And I'd say where it changed was I had my daughter. And you know, I kind of say it as one day I woke up and she was 18 months old. And I was like, oh, where'd that go? Uh, and not not having a super good relationship with my own father, that was not what I wanted. And I felt even though I could probably have stayed the course and made a lot more money again, like keep making money, I, I looked and that, that was that moment where I looked and I said, I'm not rich, but I could, I could make a choice to be a, a present father as opposed to continuing to try to make more and more money. And so that was probably the wake up. And, and at that moment, when I realized what I was trading off is like, I instantly stopped loving investment banking. It was like, you know what I'm saying? Like I didn't actually, it didn't change what it was never changed. And I, and I loved doing deals. I still love doing deals, but, but all of a sudden I could not stand the idea of being there and having my managing director control my time in a way that, uh, that I just, where I was going to be at work till midnight, not because of my own making, but because it wasn't important enough for them to tell me they had a presentation till four o'clock that night or something. Right. Yeah. So that's what, that's where the love of that job ultimately changed for me. I just reprioritized my life. So you did that. Um, it, it, I don't want to say it crushed you from a personal standpoint, but it, you know, it changed you from a personal standpoint and you realized you wanted to take another step. That next step ended up being at Lowe's. Was Lowe's the first thing that was out there for you to grab a hold of after you kind of woke up from that? Or was that a strategic decision to move over to Lowe's as well? Uh, I mean, strategic's a strong word. Uh, you know, I think I quit, you know, we, we, I stopped being an investment banker and then I, we moved to Charlotte just sort of sight, not sight unseen. We just decided we wanted to move somewhere. We wanted to go to North Carolina. We spent, we jumped in the, I left, I left investment banking Thursday, Saturday, we were in Charlotte. Uh, we spent four or five days looking around here. Then we went to Greensboro for about an hour. Then we went to Raleigh for three or four days, spent some time in Asheville, came back to Charlotte and decided this was the right mixture between culture and opportunity for us. Uh, went home, packed up our house, sold it and, and moved to Charlotte. So Lowe's or any employer really wasn't on my radar. Again, I was afforded the opportunity to take six months off of work and spend it with my family and really regroup for what I wanted to do. Um, so when I got here, if you know me, like you'll know what I'm about to say fits my personality was, you know, after about two or three months of being off of work, which I loved, I started, I, I pulled out a spreadsheet and I started mapping Charlotte into clusters between South Charlotte, Uptown, Lake Norman. And I started to list out all the employers in each one of those regions that I thought would have a corporate strategy or corporate development team. I felt like that was the transition I wanted to make. I like doing deals. I like thinking strategically, but I just didn't want to be in financial services and, and that sort of lifestyle again. So I just started creating like clusters of businesses throughout the region. And then I started LinkedIn networking my way into building a contact list at each one of those. And I talked to the guy at Lowe's whose job, I say I took, but he left. Like, it wasn't like I took it from him. Um, and I kind of reached out to him. He told me what Lowe's was about. 
And so I hung on for a little while. Uh, I interviewed for a job there that never actually materialized. Uh, they never, it took, it went radio silence for like four or five months. They just never said anything to me about it. And then the guy wrote me back and said, oh, I'm so sorry. Like this job, this job actually never got created. Um, but we liked you. You should talk to Jay Rebello, who was, who was leading business development at the time. And uh, I came in and interviewed with him there and uh, ultimately took a job at Lowe's as a, in business development. So yeah, it wasn't strategic. It was a little happenstance, but I had spent a, my investment banking days. We did a lot of work with home builders, building product distributors, specialty contractors because of it was the mid 2000s and that's what yeah. we were selling. Yeah, uh, it, it worked, right? Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> so I kind of parlayed that into some belief that I had knowledge around the industries and around home improvement. Um, and and so, yeah, I started there and, and um, kind of the rest of that story's history. Like it was, uh, it was an interesting time to join there for sure. Um, fun, and, and the last funny story on just getting into it was when I got the offer, I noticed that the guy who had introed me in had left Lowe's. So I reached out to him and he said, Chris, don't take the job. And I was like, what? He said, don't take the job. They're not serious. They don't want to do anything. You'll you'll spin your wheels for three or four years. You'll get really frustrated, but they're never going to do any deals. They don't really want to do anything outside of big box retail. Um, and I know you're a deal guy. You want to do deals. Like you're, you're going to be so bored. You're not going to want to do it. And I thought, eh, we'll give it a try. And I, I think he's, I think if I had started five years before, he probably would have been right from my understanding of the history of the company. I just hit it right place, right time, where new executive who had gotten a lot of opportunity to work with our CEO and influence his thinking. And all of a sudden, you know, I'd say there was just so much opportunity there to do new stuff. And to have a Fortune 50 company's brand and one that people love as much as Lowe's. I mean, I you rarely, every now and then someone's like, oh yeah, I went to Lowe's and like they screwed up my delivery or something like that, right? But generally speaking, I don't, I've never run into anyone who says, oh, I hate Lowe's. It's a crappy company, right? Like everybody likes it. And so it was great. I mean, it was amazing to have the resources, the uh, that brand as you went out into the market and tried to do things. But then also at the time, just like a ton of autonomy and a ton of desire to really explore things on the fringe of what they were already doing. So it's just right place, right time. So you did Lowe's on that side and then a few years, few years into it, Lowe's Ventures was the concept. And um, is that right? So you were on the deal side for a while and then Ventures kind of formed out of that? Yeah, it's kind of a, it's, there is a really logical progression of how I got from one to the other. Um, so I started, as I said, I started in this group called New Business Development, which when I first started at Lowe's was, call it 15 people. It was the 15 people that were doing something other than big box retail. Like yeah. that's the easiest way to describe it. But we did a catch all of everything. It was trends reporting. It was, you know, non-core strategy, if you will. It was launching new businesses. 
it was advisory on potential transactions that that might be undertaken. Uh, I mean, it was uh, it was managing new businesses. It was kind of just this hodgepodge. Anything that fell outside of the scope of of big box retail was in there. Um, so that was kind of my first gig, and I was in charge of. Um, well, with another person, I was in charge of pulling together basically all the new ideas that we could do. So I was in charge of kind of like monitoring the market for trends and then pulling together pitches of new businesses we could launch. And we did that for about a, I did that for about a year and change. But the thing, as again, I, I'm not really good at staying quiet when I, when I see something that I can't understand. And one of I the noticed. things I kept, yeah. One of the things I kept asking was like, what are we trying to do here? Like, what's our strategy as a company? Like we're talking about this evolution beyond big box retail, but I don't quite understand what's in scope and what's out of scope. And I think the truth was it, we had to find it at like a 30,000 foot level, but, but never really brought it down much further than that. And so I asked the question enough that again, this in the, in the vein of try to find a job you're not qualified for, uh, they they basically said to me, like, I don't know, why don't you start a group and tell us what we're talking about here in, in terms of this transition. So I got a like a three person team together and we went on uh, about a year journey of talking about this like 20 year evolution of the company uh, for, you know, that was started at big box retail and grew into something more inclusive of, of many of the industries surrounding the home. Um, and so at the, you know, we worked really closely with senior management and, and really looked at this like big major kind of evolution of the company. On the back end of that, uh, we, um, you know, I was also helping to write our corporate development playbook and really develop a strategy, a, a method for us to, to both take inputs in the world, turn that into a view of like a portfolio of businesses we wanted to operate that had some level of like uh, synergy, particularly centered around our brand and core operations, and then execute against that in both organic and inorganic means. And, and so at the conclusion of all that, we get to the end of it and one of the things that we talked about was saying like, look, modern organizations are really keeping up with where technology and innovation is heading. And, and we think they're doing it in two ways. One is uh, through a lab where we actually have our own engineers and scientists in house that help us understand where like deep tech and emerging tech intersects with us, but also where it's at on the maturation curve. And the second part is they're, they're starting venture arms and they're allocating portions of their balance sheet to to integrate into the early stage community. And um, again, right place, right time. Our executive team was like, those sound like good things. We should have those. Uh, there was a one, uh, another guy who launched our labs team to go do exactly that. And then I was fortunate enough to be given the opportunity to launch the venture arm, um, which was kind of in conjunction with my corporate development responsibilities at the time. Um, but then one learning we had within about six or seven months was really good corporate venture arms are not part of corporate development. They're actually a separate group that has a different mission. So we made that case. There was an agreement that that was the way to do it. And um, 
again, they gave me a choice of what do you want to do? Do you want to be Lowe's Ventures or do you want to go dev? And Lowe's Ventures was fun and exciting and sexy and all those other kind of things, right? And a new challenge, like I had done M&A and, and um, maybe that would have been the smarter long-term career path, but I I just thought, this is great. I want to do this. I want to build this. And so I got to go build Lowe's Ventures for the next five, six years. So, and you did that, you got to spend, um, did y'all spend, a, did your family spend some time out in California in the process of doing it? Yeah, we did. We, um, as part of it, you know, we came to realize that all of these, all this deal flow, everything is really centered around networks, you know? And when we first showed up to Silicon Valley, you know, I think when you're a Fortune 50 brand, you expect everyone to be like, oh man, Lowe's is here. This is awesome. Like, come here. And, you know, sort of on the surface, that's true. But then you realize, man, there's a lot of the good deals don't come to me, right? Like, those are secret handshake deals. And that's a, like, I knew the dude who ran product at Twitter and he's launching this new thing. And the world will hear about it when we do his $40 million series A round or something, but the seed deal and all the sausage making goes on kind of in secret amongst people that trust other people to help them. Right. And so I quickly was like, we need to be part of those people. We need to figure out how to do that. But it's hard to do from Charlotte, even though I was commuting to San Francisco probably a week a month at that point. But that, so my boss at the time actually said, hey, one thing we used to do at Walmart was over the summer while your kids are out, we would relocate you to, the, to a geography that you managed. So like if you had a team in China, like say you were a sourcing manager or something in China, we would we would all, you know, pay for you to relocate your family to China for the summer so that you could spend more time with your team and get to know them and like really spend personal time. It would be less disruptive to your family time because they're out of school. It's not as hard to manage. And like, you know, a lot of times people were like, oh, that's a pretty cool adventure. So he said, you should do that in San Francisco. And I was like, yeah, all right, I'm down with that, right? So, so get out of the we, get out of the hot Charlotte heat, move to San Francisco for the summer, right? That's not a bad deal. Yeah, and so we did that, and uh, you know, it was a it was a great opportunity to go and be there every day and develop those networks that ultimately allowed us to start to feel like someone who could be trusted with the secret handshake deals. What? Um, so you ran corporate VC. Um, which, I mean, when we think about VC, I think most of the time people think about the traditional side of VC, but there's the corporate side too, right? What makes, so you've now been on both sides, you know, people on the traditional side, what makes corporate more difficult? I don't want to say more difficult, but maybe it is, you'll tell me what makes it different than the traditional side, right? What were the, um, what were the advantages and disadvantages to being on a corporate VC arm? Yeah. So, so funny enough, I'm actually going to write, a, I'm writing a blog post for Idea Fund on this exact topic. And so you've already thought probably it through. be released. Huh? Yeah. So you've already well, thought, thought it through. It, I mean, I've thought it through many a times, but it's funny. We'll probably release these things about the same time. So there'll be some good coordination there. Uh, I always see the number, I mean, there's a ton of differences. Um, you know, we can start with structurally right? Um, 
most corporate VCs are evergreen. So it's just like you come and you ask for a certain mental allocation of money from the CFO in a given year. You say, ah, I'm going to I'm going to invest like 5 million bucks this year, 10 million or whatever you are, right? If you're a big firm, maybe it's a hundred. And, uh, but there's a, it's like, there's no start and end date, you know? In a traditional fund, you go raise a blindfold of capital, the clock starts, and you've got 10 years to give it back to people. So when you're underwriting a deal as a traditional financial VC, not only are you thinking, can this company be big, but you have to say, is it going to be big enough and is the market going to be ready for it to exit within the time frame of my fund? So if I'm three years into a fund, I've got seven years to give someone money and have them produce an exponential outcome, right? So there's only so many industries and opportunities that fit that. If you're a corporate VC, you, you theoretically have an indeterminate lifetime. And so you could, you could do shit that you think is going to take 30 years if that's what you really wanted to do, right? So, so the time frame and the structure is different. I think the other part is, um, structurally is the incentives, right? So traditional financial VC is uh, I'm going to uh, take your money, I give it back, and then we share after I give you your money back. Uh, so you have a very defined carrot of, of what your job is supposed to be. Corporate VCs, very, very, very few of them have carried interest in the most traditional sense. I'd say you've got a, a, a a small but decent sized number of them that come up with some synthetic type form of carry uh, through a bonus or stock allocations where they calculate it kind of like a fund manager. And then I'd say the vast majority are just dudes and, and women who are getting comps like whatever their band structure is, whether they're a director, a vice president, a senior vice president, they make money like every other director, vice president, senior vice president. So you can have really misaligned incentives in some ways to that end. So, so those are those are kind of like, and then I guess the last part is to go along with the evergreen structure. As much as you say it can last forever, it can also end at any moment. Yeah. Right. So again, if I raise my money in a blind pool in a traditional manner, I know I've got my full investing cycle and I've got my full kind of harvest cycle to be there. Corporate VC, you know, you got to bad quarter, bad year, two bad years, three bad quarters, whatever it is. And you go and say, yeah, I need that 10 mil again this year. And they can say, nah, I'm good. Yeah. Right. So you, you can end up with $0 pretty quick as well. So I think those are kind of like, those are a couple of big things structurally. To me, the real big differences come in the, um, in the measure of success. Right. So I think most corporate VCs measure success non-financially, right? Their two, biggest, their two biggest measures of success are either learnings, right? Strategic learnings. I'm looking around the corner. I see what's going on in the world. And I, I tell strategy. And strategy one day makes some great large-scale decision based off of the learnings that I gave them. Or two, partnerships, yeah, I found, a, I found someone to do this innovation work. I found someone to work with us on, on a, an issue that we ultimately had. And we, we were able to do a commercial deal. And those two things generally supersede all kind of cash on cash or IRR metrics associated with it. Almost exclusively, every, almost every corporate VC I've ever seen has, you know, fundamental IRR as like a distant third metric as to what's the most important thing. It doesn't mean that 
it's not important, but it's it's like not the thing that drives it. You know, financial VC is the purest form of capitalism there is, right? Yeah. We are here to make as much money as humanly possible with the money that you give us. Um, and we are incentivized heavily to do that because of our participation in the upside. So it doesn't matter what I learn. It doesn't matter what relationships I broker to people my LPs receive. Well, I'll say, generally speaking, the financial VC, that doesn't matter. You know, I think if you have a bunch of strategic LPs, you know, maybe there's some like, we gave you money because you write us an industry report or, or make some connections. But generally speaking, it's pretty pure play in terms of, I give you money and hopefully you can be three to five times that amount of money back. But so I've known you, I don't know, call it five years. Maybe it probably hasn't been that long. It's maybe been three or four. But the time that I've known you, even while you were at Lowe's, you were, you're even then, and, and maybe the entire time you, I don't, I never really saw you as groomed to be a corporate VC guy, right? You always thought more and I call it traditional, you call it finance, whatever. Um, you were always, you always thought more and not in terms of the, you know, the capitalistic side of it, but just on the, um, on the other stuff that you mentioned, right on that side. Am, am I right on that? Did you, did you see the writing on the wall early that corporate VC wasn't going to be for you or did it take some time and changes in management and everything else before that became apparent? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'll be honest, three years ago, somewhere in that neighborhood, uh, I thought for sure I'd be, I mean, I would have done Lowe's Ventures for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, I would say my thinking was more around the belief that the concept that IRR is a distant, distant third, I never believed it. No matter what everyone said, I actually felt like, look, if we Forex this money, <laughs> like it'll give us a really long string, right? Yeah. If we're paying for ourselves, it's a lot easier for people to say, oh, you want to write a, a paper about using blockchain home equity to buy milk one day, like, oh, whatever, like you made us a whole bunch of money. So I'll, I'll allow it. Right. So I always felt like as much as we say that, you know, I think IRR solves a lot of problems. And many of the people that I spoke to in the industry that were from really notable corporate VCs that kind of gave me the lowdown said, look, the faster you can return some money and get into the black, um, the long, the longer your life cycle is. But if you get to the two kisses of death or management change, shocker, uh, kind of what happened. Uh, and, and then secondarily, when that management change comes, not having the financial track record at that point where people go, eh, I'll give them another, I'll give them another shot, right? It can't be on the come. And so, you know, I, I always believe, and then I guess where I always believed was with our mission. Uh, so the, I think the mission of learnings and partnerships, again, is about network and deal flow, right? Hey, I want to meet the smartest people doing the craziest stuff. And I want to be able to have a constant pipeline of great companies and great people to talk to because it's it's the thousand coffees a year that you have that turn to the to the document that you write about the future of home, right? For us. Yeah. It's not the four companies we wrote a check into, it's the thousand other people we talk to. 
And my belief, and I still fundamentally believe this, uh, my belief was that both the learnings and the partnership side of things were a direct result of us being perceived as a legit VC, right? Like going to, you know, I don't know, Sequoia Capital and saying, if I can go to them with a track record where all of my founders are like, no, they, they do it right. They, they follow on when they need to, they step up, they're good board people, they help shepherd us towards great positive outcomes. Like that's what's gonna get the other people who have the, the keys to the kingdom of like network to respect you. So it may not be what matters theoretically to your investment committee internally, but it's what matters to the people who you have to convince to show you the good, the good deals and to invite and to connect you to the right people. So I always felt like, I always felt like if you lead with this idea that I'm gonna be the best VC possible, that then the other two things are an, are an output of that. The ability to talk to the right people, learn from the right people, be respected enough to have real conversations with them and be shown really cool stuff is an offshoot of people respecting you as an actual VC. I think if you're just seen as corporate money, who's just like a corp dev guy who showed up that's kind of doing minority deals and sourcing technologies for his company, but like it's a, it's a totally different guarded conversation that you have. And and the networks of other VCs will purely see you as like an acquirer or a commercializer as opposed to a peer. And I felt like you had to get to peer status and you could only get to peer status by, by producing financial returns. I don't know, that, that was just my belief. I still kind of hold on to it uh, as, as, a, as a truth to that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's the financial returns piece that, um that i don't know in our conversations you've always voiced right which is i guess the reason i said corporate maybe didn't seem like it was the best fit for you but when you explain it that way in terms of corporate having to hit that metric in order to gain um we'll call it street cred right um i get that so one of the things that you mentioned in there um and you know as i was preparing for this obviously one of the things we go do is read through linkedin profiles and other things on on chris and what you've done in the past um you've got more board seats than um you know i got years in my profession right so um anyway so, you, so you've sat on a lot of boards you've been um an advisor for a lot of uh companies and you know there's been over years, there's been companies that have decided that boards weren't necessary and that they didn't need a board and that founders were all that was necessary, et cetera, et cetera. What, what makes a good board advisor and company relationship? And please say something besides communication. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think one is, I think the idea that you don't need a board is nonsensical in a multitude of ways. Um, a board is, so first of all, board is not a parental figure. It's not someone who you have to answer to per se, or it shouldn't be. It should be your closest advisors who you trust and believe, who you gather where you can have a vulnerable conversation with them about the challenges that you have and the decisions you need to make as a founder, right? It's 
there are very few opportunities for a founder slash CEO to be vulnerable. Like they can't do that with customers or trying to convince them to do something. I always say like being a founder is convincing a bunch of people to do something extremely irrational, which is to give them money when they don't deserve it, to buy their product when it's not probably better than what's out there from an enterprise solution, to convince employees to come there when they could make double the amount, right? Like all it is is convincing a bunch of people to do something that makes no sense, right? And so you have to almost exude this ridiculous level of confidence uh, and, and have this like stone air about you that, yeah, like this is all gonna work, of course it is. But you need an outlet to be like, dude, I don't know if this is gonna work at all. Like this is what's going on. These are the, this is really what's happening. So to me, I think first and foremost, that's, that's the role of a board, right? to be that outlet for the CEO to say, and this job is hard and I've got a lot of crazy decisions and I am balancing whether we're gonna like raise money, fire people, do this. And like, I need, I need people to talk through it who have, who've seen other things, who've had other experiences that bring something else to the table. There's obviously a governance piece to it. Like I, as an investor, I, I, I would never, I think I, I don't know, I mean, I hate to say never, but like, it would be really hard pressed for me to invest in a company where my share class is not represented at the board, right? I mean, I think it's hard to put my money in a company and believe that I have no say or no vote in the major, major decisions of what goes on. Like that just, that seems like completely off, off base for me. Um, so then I think the other part is the construction of a board needs to be thought through from, it, it it tends to, in the early days, be whoever put the most money in each round, which kind of sucks, because um, I don't necessarily think that's the right way to do it. I look at it and say, what do you, what do you need as a founder? Like, what do you, do you need someone who's good at biz dev? Do you need someone who's good at holding you to task on financial KPIs? Um, do you need someone who's a strategic thinker? Do you need someone from the industry? Like, I think it's about, like I say, Compose like surrounding yourself with people who bring a different view and skill set to the table and collectively leveraging that to make the best decisions. Um, I, a board should not run a company. Uh, the founding team should run that company and make those decisions. We should just be an advisor to them uh, is kind of the way I look at it. Um, I'd say the last part, and, and maybe this is more as like call it lead investor more so than just board member is I always tell people the number one thing I'm going to bring to the table is, um, is your, you know, and you said not to say communication, but like, um, is like someone to talk to, like it's when you're lonely, right? It's a lonely, lonely job to be a CEO. And I promise you that you can text me, call me anytime you want. And you can talk about whatever you want and it will never, it will not be held against you. I mean, to the extent they're not committing securities fraud or something, right? It's not gonna be held against you in my mental court of law. You can tell me you're having the worst day ever. You hate this person that you work with. Um, you feel scared. You it, Tell me whatever you want. Like I wanna, it's almost like a therapist's job in yep. some way. Um, I, and I, I probably, when I first started underestimated the value of that role um, thinking like, well, any ass clown could do that, right? Like just take a text and respond to it. But I, I find that to actually be substantively more important and what's really driven the relationships with my founders more than 
making a biz dev connection for them. Like that's expected, but I think the next level part is like truly being someone they trust to say something that they don't want to tell anyone else. Makes a lot of sense. So, and you did say communication, but you said it in a much better way. So um, <laughs> I appreciate it. So was investment banking more beneficial for your corporate VC role or was it more beneficial for your current VC role? Uh, or, I would or say, neither. I mean, I'd probably say more for the corporate, but it's, it's hard to say. It's like, um, Hey, when you ran, when you ran cross country, did that help you when you became a soccer player? Right? Like they're totally, they're different things, but there's this like base level, like for me, investment banking taught me how to work hard, uh, understand how financial statements speak to each other, right? And be able to look at a financial statement. Like, I, I think the best part of it is, as I used to say is, you give me a three statement model for the last five years of a business, I can tell you what's happening in that business. Like I can look at it and say, it's growing because of this. It's, it's margins are being compressed because of it. Like this ability to look at these numbers and I can actually turn it into work. Like I can immediately tell you what's happening. Like, I think that's an amazing skill to have that, that never goes away, even though I don't use it every day. Um, and then the last part was writing like professional writing. I mean, we had to write all these corporate investment memorandums and stuff like when we're selling a company. So the ability to drop into an industry that I know zero about, and then write a 50 page document within like two weeks that articulates what's great about a business, what's, what's interesting about an industry, the drivers, how this thing moves in. Like I'd say all of that was just as much as like going to school was helpful. It was more just like, it taught me these basic skills that translate across every career. Um, it's probably more applicable to corporate venture, but I think it kind of, it's like basic building blocks that led to, to both of them. Yeah. And yet totally different and had a totally different job, you know? What's the, um, what's, and we'll, we'll take it from a corporate VC perspective. Um, so don't think about it in terms of return. <laughs> what's, what's the coolest investment that you've made with idea fund, even one that hasn't, um, materialized yet, but just, um, or back at, back at Lowe's. What was that? I mean, what's, what, tell us a story or two. Coolest one man i mean that's, that's it's hard to say like it's like which uh, which kid is better <laughs> yeah i mean i can do that but no, just, yeah. you know, I, honestly i don't know that like i said I, I i like them all for different reasons and like for instance k4 connect is a good example um k4 connect is a company based out of raleigh and they're building you know, connected home solutions for seniors and people with disability. And, you know, I think what's great is it's, it's a pure mission driven company, right? Like, obviously they're there to make money. Right? There's no, there's no denying the, that. But, you know, I think what's amazing is, you know, Scott, who's the CEO is a guy who doesn't need to work another day in his life for money. Like he took a company public and then was the first company was bought by Apple to then create the Apple touch or the touch ID, 
right? Okay. So his company was the one that created the um, the technology that's used in all of the biometrics touch ID, right? So did all right for himself, right? Like probably doesn't need doesn't need to work again in order he's, to feed his family, right? He's good. He's good. Yeah. And yet, you know, he was getting an itch to do something in tech, was building some stuff, and then confronted with a situation where he met a guy um, who had a, you know, a debilitating disease. And, you know, he, he talked to him about it and he said, you know, look, I measure the quality of my life. I've got about a thousand good steps a day, right? And so the quality of my life is determined by how I use those thousand steps, right? Where does it take me? And he was working on this connected home solution and he had this epiphany, wait a second, like this is what we should do, right? This is not about making my hallway turn purple when Prince comes on the radio, right? This is about like truly using automation as a, as a way to improve the life of another human being, right? There's a real reason why we do it. And everything that he does within that company is centered around, you know, that customer, like thinking through how do I make this person's life better? Um, so I think that's, you know, that was kind of like a real amazing eye-opener. Um, you know, I think, I'll tell you another, like the first investment I ever made uh, is, is a, has been an interesting story. Like we, <laughs> we met this guy. He was, in a, he was in a, pr a very notable accelerator out in Silicon Valley. And, uh, and he was working on something. And this was like one, you know, there's so many learnings you take away from this, but he's working on something that I had, you know, written down once in my job at like, lows about like oh the world should have this right the world should have this thing and so you know we meet this guy and he's in this notable accelerator and he says i'm working on this idea right uh and you're like oh man we got to do this like we got to get in on this right so we just like bring it back and i think we were all just like hankering to do a deal first of all right it's like let's yeah. do it let's get one right and oh yeah we immediately understand this concept and we uh so we funded them in like a pre-seed note, which again, like, I mean, I don't even do pre-seed notes now, like yeah. let alone then, right? Uh, so we do it and he, you know, builds his company and then it basically disintegrates in like a year and change. Everybody leaves, nobody wants to fund it. And, uh, you know, I was really disappointed. I really felt like, man, this guy, let me down. Like he, he had this vision. He didn't execute on it. He didn't inspire other people to go on this mission. Like what the heck? And he just says, look, I'm not fully shutting it down. I'm just going to like, I need to get a real job and make some money, but I'll keep it alive on the side because it only takes about, I don't know, call it less than like $2,000 a month to keep it going. And so we'll just do that and I'll work on improvements on the side. And then like, when I get a chance, I will, uh, you know, I'll do my best to, to resuscitate it or add some new people to it. And uh, so what I think is really cool actually is, so he did that uh, and, you know, he's now re-emerging. So he's been like literally keeping it on life support for five years by himself. And he's completely changed what the company is. And he's got a good, and now he's growing and he's actually going to bring it back out, get a team and raise money. And so that, when I think it, I, I was the perseverance of that, you know, I mean, I think most people would just shut that thing down, 
you know, yeah. no way they would have done it. So I think, you know, every, every company, the best part is every company has got a story, right? Every company is full of people that are, that have great ideas that are trying their damnedest to, to make a dent in the world and do something impactful, whether that thing seems trivial to you or not. And it's hard not to be inspired by, by these people, um, regardless of the outcome. How do you let, um, and we'll finish with this, right? Um, cause we're, we're wrapping up on time and you're right. Everybody has a story in their company. Um, and most of the times it's a good story, right? Um, and you can get wrapped up quickly in that story. How do you separate the story from the investment thesis? Right. Um, yeah. How do you approach it? I mean, I know the answer, but just talk through it for a minute. How do you approach separating the story from the investment? Yeah. I mean, one, I start with the idea that we see a thousand deals a year and we do four, right? So it's a 99.96% chance the answer is no, right? So the, the, um, NBA, the NBA kept you sharp <laughs> on math. That's nice. That's right. Yeah. So you know, it's like, I start with that. We're, we're probably not going to do this deal is like the first way I start out. Um, so I think, I, I think for me, you know, you start with, and I'm actually going through, I, it's almost like, I don't want to say this because maybe this founder will hear this and be like, Oh, are you talking about me? Right. But like, I'm kind of going through it right now. I love the story of, of what she's doing. Um, I think she's, the right person to do this. Like, I have no doubt that if there's someone to back to do this thing, it's her, right? I think she's got a good team. I think she's got the right idea of how to attack the market. So we'll start there, right? So I'm there, I love it. It's a good story, love you, you're awesome, cool. On the other side, what I do, real, the other part is, hey, this company needs to stay alive for several years to get enough scale to, to kind of break out, right? And so, you know, we talked about terms early on. And, you know, I think what I'll end up doing, um, and this hasn't gone through investment committee, so we may not even get to this point, right? But like, I feel like I like the story, but it's gotta be a substantively different deal. And it's not because I'm being an a-hole and I want to like grab a bigger piece of the cap table. It's because as you start to then logically break down the deal, you say, well, what kind of multiples do these businesses trade at, right? And so our post money is going to set kind of a floor for an expectation of what the pre-money of the next round needs to be in order for new investors to get excited and make sure that we're not overly diluting the business and all this other kind of things, right? So if I'm paying a 20X multiple today and, and you trade at three, right? Like you either need to show me a path to insane growth, right? Over that period of time, or like we're, we're looking at it wrong. So, so that's one where I'm like, hey, I'm done with the story. I already get the story. I'm, a, I'm 100% good on that. Now, we need to sit down and have a sobering discussion about the, the right investment. And all I can do is go and say, I actually think it's in both of our benefit to do this deal. I know you want this deal, right? And that's great. And, and if you can get it, and if you want to live with the repercussions of someone giving you capital at that point, 
you know, there's nothing I can do. I can't, I can't compete any further, right? If, if price is your main objective. But, but my goal is to then separate it and go, here's what I think the right investment for us all to come to. And if you disagree, then, then we have to walk away. But um, I think it's just important to say, there's the like, is this potential to be a great company? But then you also have to say the deal that I do can either put us on the right path or the wrong path to achieving that vision. Because if I overvalue you today and you can't raise another round of financing, you'll die regardless of the story, right? Because you'll run out of money. And, yeah. and so, so I think that's, you, you always have to kind of start with the one, make sure you believe the one and then, and then build the right investment case for, for the second. So it's almost like you get sold on the colorful and you have to, right. You get sold on the, on the picture and, and then ultimately you have to then transition over to there's a black and white. Um, and the black and white has to allow the picture to work. Right. And that's yeah. what the, the, the numbers and everything else do for you. Well, one of, I mean, one of the killers for me is like the entrepreneurial media, if you will, there's so much content. And that, then that content is distributed broadly, right? So they talk about what happens in Silicon Valley and then people in Charlotte want to like interpret that as like the way it should be, right? Well, and, and I get this whole, who cares if you pay 5 million pre or 10 million pre if there's a billion dollar outcome? And I 100% agree with that. I don't 100% agree with it, right? That's a, that's a yeah. two times difference in your yeah. return. But, but I agree that if you could tell me for sure you're getting to a billion dollar outcome, I'd gladly pay 10 today, right? Like I'm, I'm good. With that. Yeah. My point is there are steps to get to the billion dollar outcome. And those typically include raising more money or having other milestones. And I have seen many companies with everything go well, except for getting out over their skis from a valuation perspective. And then they get faced with either like a down round, a flat round, or no interest because nobody wants to give them the down round or flat round term sheet, right? Yeah. And then they die and they're like, why, oh, man, what happened? And so I think you can be over, I think founders just need to have like a sobering um, reality check when it doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter what someone raised for in Silicon Valley. Uh, and there's lots of reasons why that is a total greater fool's game in the end. So, you know, I think as long as everyone can sit down and have a rational conversation on the back end, then, um, then you, hopefully you can get to a deal that makes sense. And I think being a counsel to people, I think I'm actually doing them a service by giving them a term sheet that I think is fair uh, as opposed to the lowest cost of capital. And again, it's their choice. They can do whatever they want with their business. But I think my job is to present them with a fair structure where we can all ultimately benefit. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a hard, um, yes, yeah, what makes it difficult, right? So you might like something, it, you might want it to be one of the four and the terms just don't get there. And so you've got to go find another, um, another company to fill that role. So yeah. that's what makes Saying the job no. difficult. Yeah. Saying no is the hardest part. Yeah. So, uh, well, cool, Chris. It's, I mean, as always, um, you know, it's great. It's great to catch up. It's always better to do it in person, but in this day and age, um, you and I both are happy or unhappy to sit on another zoom call. So <laughs> thanks so much for joining me talking about it on the podcast. Look forward to doing it again 
as you're, you know, been with Idea Fund a couple of years, we'll circle back around and just continue to talk about the successes that you've had with the investments and everything else. So I'm certainly excited for you in the new role um, and wish you the best of luck, especially for yourself, but because of everything that you bring to the Charlotte entrepreneurial community. So um, thanks for being a, a steadfast member of it. Man. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Have a yeah, good day, man. Yeah, you too. See expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Portis Wealth Advisors. The topics discussed and the opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Portis Wealth Advisors does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interest may be offered only to persons who qualified as accredited investors under applicable state and federal regulation or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interest. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in the market conditions and interest rates and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.